Hello and welcome to another episode of Guido Talks. My name's Tom Harwood and today I am joined again by Guido Fork's founder and editor Paul Staines as well as reporter Christian Cowgy. You're listening to Guido Talks or maybe you're watching us on YouTube. This is the show where we go back over the last week's happenings on the Guido Fawkes website and take you a bit behind the stories. So this week has had some large stories despite the country being in lockdown and some of the country's leaders being in even a harsher state of lockdown than that. But I'm sure we'll get to that later. The biggest story without any doubt this week was to do with the former leader of the Labour Party and his machinations with the current leader of the Labour Party. Kaugi, can you take us through what happened? Uh, yes, of course. So we had uh, Jeremy Corbyn readmitted uh, into the Labour Party. Um, this was uh, on the 17th, uh, so that's Tuesday, I think. And uh, we had uh, uh, what on the face of it seemed like an apology and was certainly reported as an apology by much of the mainstream media, uh, a Facebook post by Corbyn uh, in which he said, to be clear, concerns about anti-Semitism are neither exaggerated nor overstated. Uh, it seemed somewhat of a U-turn, although as we pointed out, uh, the key point was that on the day he got sacked from the Labour Party, he said the scale of the problem was dramatically overstated. And his statement this week said concerns about anti-Semitism weren't overstated. So he hasn't changed his views at all. But in spite of that, the NEC uh, voted to uh, allow him back into the Labour Party. And then what followed was uh, numerous hours of will he, won't he, surrounding Sakia and whether... Uh, Corbyn would be allowed back into the Parliamentary Labour Party uh, because within the, the Labour rulebook, those are two separate things. Although uh, Corbyn loyalists certainly didn't think so on the uh, morning after Corbyn's uh, reinstatement into the Labour Party, uh, we had Corbyn's former uh, spin doctor, James Schneider, claiming that the two had gone hand in hand and actually he'd automatically been readmitted uh, into the Parliamentary Labour Party. Uh, we have footage of Corbyn himself from a private Islington North Labour Party meeting saying that he was now uh, once again a Labour Party MP. And then, uh, you know, uh, Sakir came along and uh, rained on his dreams and said, no, you're not. <laughs> Well, there was quite a lot of confusion about this, and some of that confusion might stem from something that was reported in a couple of papers on Thursday morning. And that's that there were a number of discussions between senior people in the Corbyn camp and senior people in the Keir Starmer camp about working out a political arrangement to allow Corbyn back. Um, uh, allegedly, the statement that Corbyn wrote that was sort of a, uh, a half apology uh, was seen by Keir Starmer's team and it was all beforehand all agreed that he would go back into the party and have the whip restored but upon that announcement by that NEC panel on Tuesday the uproar was such within the Labour Party uh, is the theory that Keir Starmer reneged on this deal this backroom behind the scenes deal that he might have uh, that his people had made with Jeremy Corbyn's people 
Um, so it, it, perhaps it has been the case that uh, Jeremy Corbyn was under the impression uh, he was going to be readmitted, did all the steps that Keir Starmer's people had asked of him, um, and then Keir Starmer reneged on it after he saw a bit of pushback. That's one theory that was widely reported, although it has to be said that Keir Starmer's people are ferociously denying that course of events, as, as you'd expect them to. I think that either way, this is pretty bad politics for Starmer because how many people out there in the country understand the distinction between Corbyn being readmitted as a Labour member versus receiving the whip and all the toing and froing? I think to most people in the country, this looks like a, a massive U-turn from from the Labour establishment at the very least in terms of their you know, um, no holds barred approach to tackling anti-Semitism. Absolutely, and even if you... ...has made up its mind that that uh, Corbyn's uh, anti-Semite and Labour's better off without him, which seems strange that the NEC then voted to readmit him. But it's an absolute nightmare for them. I mean, you've got Len McCluskey, who apparently was the broker of this deal, or non-deal, if you believe the Starmer people. So uh, he's the paymaster, in effect, for the Labour Party. If he's not happy, that's going to cause Starmer immense grief. You know, where he'd be happy to marginalise the left, he doesn't want to marginalise his main source of finance. And of course, even if we don't buy into the idea that there was this secret deal, the process as it as the official uh, Starmer account is, is is somewhat questionable in and of itself. Because, of course, the EHRC report in the first place denounced the Labour Party processes as being far too politicised, as not being independent, as being broken, really. And then those same processes, in a matter of weeks, act to reinstate Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and, and, and this is while some people are waiting for anti-Semitism cases for, for months and on months, and in some cases, years to be heard. So yeah, this does I seem like it's be. an entirely politicised process, whichever way you look at it. And that what? led the uh, chair of the all-party parliamentary group on British Jews this week to write to the EHRC to have them to re-examine this, because it does look like Labour is failing to fulfil its obligations. Arguably, shouldn't uh, Corbyn go to the back of the queue, join the backlog of cases that the Labour Party hasn't cleared of all these anti-Semitism cases? I mean, why should he jump the queue? He's just equal in an equal member as everyone else, right? Well, so, there's, that, there's that question. There's also, why haven't Labour paused the whole system whilst they go about setting up the new one that they promised to have in place by the new year. I mean, surely everyone can wait another couple of months rather than rushing through something that the EHRC has found unfit for purpose. Uh, it, it, it's The whole thing's bizarre, the timescale of it. Absolutely. And it's not just us. It's not just sort of uh, the right of centre blogs that are saying this, because, of course, um, Annalise Dodds, the shadow chancellor, was uh, doing a sort of media round on Thursday morning. And she was challenged um, on this point with a quote from Margaret Hodge, probably the most senior Jewish woman Labour MP, um, who described the, the readmission process of Jeremy Corbyn as being politically corrupted. And Annalise Dodds absolutely accepted that. 
she didn't challenge that for one second. She said, yes, the process is politically corrupted and it needs to be fixed. Well, if the shadow chancellor of the Labour Party is saying that, then why on earth are they still going along with this corrupted process that they admit is uh, not working? Surely they shouldn't be hearing any cases under this process. They should throw it out the window and wait for the new independent process to be established. I think in reality, Starmer hasn't got a grip of the Labour Party machine quite as yet. He's, he's, he's strengthened by the NEC elections recently. He hasn't got control and he can't just dictate processes. And being a lawyer, he's quite keen on due process. So until he does get a tighter grip on the machine, the, the Labour Party machine, these kind of things will go on. And the Labour left was pushing so hard for this, he didn't have a choice really. Right. Well, leaving that machine to one side, there was a disciplinary process that did seem to work this week. And this wasn't, strictly speaking, within the Labour Party. This was in the House of Lords. Now, Paul, can you tell us what went on here? Well, I'm going to be careful because I don't have the advantage of um, the protections and the prerogatives of uh, Parliament. But a the Standards Committee for the Lords found that Lord Ahmed was to be expelled and he resigned, he jumped before he was pushed and the expulsion was over, a member of the public coming to him for assistance, uh, a vulnerable woman and him allegedly making, uh, taking sexual advantage or sexually assaulting her, I think was a report. So that could lead to uh, prosecution. Lord Ahmed is no stranger to prosecutions. He went to jail over reckless driving where he uh, killed a member of the public. He's been, had numerous run-ins with um, the authorities. He blamed his conviction for dangerous driving, for which he served jail time, on the Jews, obviously, in, an, in, a, uh, in, a, lang, in, a, in a non-English. So he has form for attracting trouble. And frankly, I think, I hope we see that the last we see of him. I think he was thrown out of the Labour Party a couple of years ago, but continued to sit as a, as a crossbench peer. Yeah, he was suspended, was he? Um, uh, yeah, and, it, and he's been clinging on for a very long time. But what was interesting is he was uh, shown the results of this report. And this report um, was the first time ever uh, that this committee had, had recommended the expulsion of a member of the House of Lords, the first time in its 800 or so year history that someone has ever been recommended for outright expulsion from, um, for, from being a peer. And he read that report over the weekend and resigned two days before it was published, which is a little bit grubby of him. So officially he hasn't been expelled because of course he jumped. Um, but still a, a remarkable state of affairs and one that didn't really get nearly enough coverage um, in the in the mainstream press, in my view. Um, but I suppose we did have quite a few uh, larger stories this week. Not least, Brexit is still going on, um, remarkably. And one thing that happened that uh, was picked up absolutely everywhere, it's hard to miss, uh, the fact that two of the most fervent um, pro-Brexit people in number 10 have now left the building in Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings. And one of the issues that that has caused for the negotiations uh, we wrote about this week 
was a certain hardening of the EU's position on uh, a number of key issues. They have sensed a sort of domestic weakness as some pro-Remain voices, pro-compromise for the sake of it voices have become emboldened as a result of Dominic Cummings' departure. Um, I spoke to a couple of people involved in negotiations who said that the EU as a result have, uh, where they were perhaps showing a bit more leeway the week before, hardened their stance. Now it remains to be seen how long they will continue to harden their stance and um, how long it will take them to realise that actually David Frost is still very much in charge of the negotiations and is still a very committed Brexiteer. Um, but it does give everyone pause for thought that has, has uh, our negotiating hand been weakened at a very, very crucial moment. David Frost put out that statement saying nothing had changed, basically, and he was still keen on Britain gaining its complete sovereignty over its future. So I can't blame the EU for trying it on, but whether it's any change to negotiating stance, I would have thought not. Well, I suppose we can hope not. And one of the interesting things about uh, the statement that David Frost put out is he didn't say we, he didn't say the government, he said specifically I, uh, really putting the, the onus on he himself, that he will not stand for any dilution of those fundamental principles of our negotiating position, the ones that we put out straight from the beginning of this future relationship negotiation, um, that, this, that uh, the UK negotiators have once stood completely clearly on and very much taking that personal claim in it so I think gives it a bit more credibility than this nebulous idea of, of whoever is in um, advising government from time to time. David Frost they, is still there. They did go under the radar a bit but there were some absolutely insane uh, you know ridiculous unbelievable briefings during the whole Cummings uh, Kane uh, bust up, which, you know, I think Sam Coates of Sky tweeted out that there are now rumours that Brexit is going to be delayed for six months or something because of um, the, the exit of, of Cummings and Kane, you know, who can say who briefed that and in what uh, interest it was. But perhaps there's a, a grain of truth in saying that uh, the EU uh, perhaps hoped that those uh, anonymous briefings were true and... Uh, will be sorely disappointed when they find out that it's more than just two members of, of Boris's team that believe in Brexiting or, or, uh, or concluding the future relationship negotiations uh, at the end of the year. Yes, and there was another um, twist and turn to those negotiations on Thursday as it was announced that the high-level talks had to be suspended because someone in Michelle Barnier's team um, has developed COVID. This is, of course, after Michelle Barnier himself got COVID right back at the early part of this pandemic, if we remember, and now a member of his team has. And actually, if you look at the numbers in France right now, it, it's surprising more of Michel Barnier's team have not got COVID. Belgium and France seem to be two of the uh, absolute hotspots of this second wave of coronavirus. Um, so, so everything's been put on hold for a short period of time. We don't know when it will be restarting. Um, I, I can only imagine that uh, the lower level talks are still um, carrying on as they all were, but when Michel Barnier will next see David Frost is a bit up in the air at the moment. Of course, in Downing Street, Boris himself has had to uh, self-isolate after getting a ping on his app, which we have the ridiculous situation of the uh, 
government and the Downing Street Twitter account itself briefing out that you should open windows when you have visitors. We got pictures of, you know, half dozen MPs, Tory MPs, getting their selfie with uh, Boris in front of shut windows. Uh, it was shut windows, certainly less than two metres apart, no masks, and also in-person business meetings, which could have happened via Zoom. I mean, a calamity. And, and, as a and, result, and all of this up. in the middle of a national lockdown where everyone's supposed to be staying at home. I mean, uh, yes. I've, been, I've been staying at home because I've been, I, I have to, uh, because I'm, I'm self-isolating, but just looking out the window, I mean, it, it looks completely normal. Everyone's sort of going about, I, it doesn't feel to me, I don't know if, has, has anyone been into a shop recently? I haven't for the last two weeks, but, um, <laughs> but it feels, but it feels like we're, we're not really in a, a second lockdown at all. Uh, from my vantage point. Slightly yeah, different I mean, in uh, Ireland, uh, I can tell you. Uh, I've, I've only ever been to the shops or to pick up the children from school, and that's it, so I am pretty isolated. <laughs> yeah, I also haven't left the house for about three days, but uh, that's just pure laziness. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, but also, uh, I mean, it's not just, it's not just Boris, but... Um, we, we were doing a, a rolling tally, and by the middle of the week, we got to 13 Tory MPs, including Boris and uh, Lee Anderson, who's the MP who actually got coronavirus and was the patient zero for this whole uh, self-isolating chain reaction. 13 Tory MPs having to uh, self-isolate as a result of this uh, absolute farce. Uh, and then we also had the innovation of the first ever... Uh, Zoom PMQs uh, in in about sixty years worth of the question time session. So that was a that was an historic uh, opportunity to watch, but uh, ridiculous. <laughs> it could have all been avoided very easily. Yes, yeah, so, but of, of course, it, if you think sorry, problems, Downing Street should probably be able to afford to get a clip-on mic or something because it was quite tinny. I thought his. his <laughs> Although I, I have to say, Paul, it's a bit rich of this podcast to be criticising Downing Street for audio quality issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they at least we have the excuse that we're not the literal government. Um, but but to give uh, Boris and those 13 Tory MPs some slack, it wasn't just the Tory MPs who've had to self-isolate this week because the boss of Test and Trace, Dido Harding herself, got pinged by her own app and is now in self-isolation for two weeks as well. So yes, it affects everyone right from the bottom to the very top, um, which as someone who has been in isolation myself the last uh, almost two weeks now, um, I, I felt almost uh, a little bit gratified with, but at least the person who's made me do this is now <laughs> suffering as well. Um, it doesn't help me in any sense, but I, I suppose there's that... Um, there's that envy or relativity that, that, that's helping. It's just occurred to me that if Dido Harding's having to self-isolate, she's married to a Tory MP, isn't she? Mm. So it might, it might actually be 14 Tory MPs self-isolating at the moment. Well, I think the rules are a little bit ambiguous in terms of if you're, if you're one person who's just self-isolating as a contact rather than someone who has tested positive, the rules are slightly different about um, self-isolating as a household, or at least my housemate assures me that's the case. Um, 
<laughs> right. Um, well, onwards from the self-isolation mess, um, there's someone in Downing Street who created a bit of news um, herself for probably good reasons, um, I think we'd all agree, this week. Kaugi, can you uh, tell us all about this? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, this is the uh, some future... Uh, changes to the way Downing Street briefings are going to happen. There was a, a virtual post PMQ's huddle yesterday, uh, which, uh, in which journalists had the opportunity to be briefed by uh, Allegra Stratton, who's of course going to go and be the face of the government uh, from uh, the new year onwards. And Allegra Stratton informed journalists that actually she's going to be uh, on the record, uh, it's going to be an end to uh, the, the 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 murky world uh, of uh, aspects of the lobby system and the briefing system, uh, which will be certainly refreshing. And I know Paul uh, Paul and I uh, we're trying to get our heads around some of the confusion. Uh, I'm sure Paul can explain that actually certain aspects were changed under Blair, and a lot of people don't know that you could already refer to. Uh, the chief press by name uh, after briefings. Now, let me clarify. The, the, the Prime Minister's official spokesman and the press secretary are currently two different people. Currently, after Lee Kane went, who was the press secretary, who was off the record, usually, uh, has now been replaced by Allegra Stratton. James Slack is now the director of communications uh, and uh, someone's been promoted. I've ja- Jamie Davies has been promoted to Jamie, the head of press. Jamie Davies is now doing Slack's old job. Now, these names are probably not common to everybody uh, uh, listening and um, watching this. Essentially, the press secretary has been people like Damien McBride and Lee Kane. And if you're wondering who those anonymous negative briefings were from, there's your answer, the off the record person. So theoretically, we won't be officially having negative anonymous briefings from the main officials in Downing Street. I also have a bridge to sell you if you're interested. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, you'll, you'll no longer see lobby journalists tweeting out, you know, during a big scandal, uh, you know, the same a senior government source. A senior Downing Street source. Senior Downing Street source. It will be uh, more subtle than that and probably more bespoke uh, And uh, uh, from now on. Yes, I, well... I'm in- so cynical. There's not going to be any negative briefing. What are you talking about, Karen? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think it's because Biden won the US election. Now everything is nice and happy and rosy and there's going to be no negativity and everything's all together. That's, that's surely that's something that I um, read in the newspapers. Um, it's, it's un- anyway. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, we also uh, had Allegra praising the press uh, for the vital vital work they've been doing during the pandemic, which is, you know, such an incredible vault fast in terms of the the government attitude towards uh, the fourth estate uh, since the the Kane era. Um, I'm 
personally pretty miffed off. I, I enjoyed the, uh, the, the animosity between the, between the two parts of Westminster. I enjoyed wand- wandering between the two. Uh, <laughs> well, no, it's, it's fine. We're absolutely, truly renegade again now, which is, which is uh, a good <laughs> position for Guido to be in. Um, but of course, uh, there, there's a lot of change going on in Downing Street right now because they're after a permanent chief of staff which was the um, position that was being um, uh, created and then changed and shifted that kicked off this whole scandal that led to uh, Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings leaving the building. Um, And one of the names on the list um, of potential people to be brought in to be Chief of Staff is one Isaac Lovado, who ran the Tory campaign in the 2019 general election very successfully. Um, why was there a story about Isaac Clavado this week, Calgary? Uh Well, this was, uh, he was uh, top billing for a policy exchange conservative home webinar uh, on One Nation Conservatism, what does it look like after COVID-19? And uh, very disappointingly, he uh, pulled out uh, last minute without uh, an explanation and said a few tongues uh, wagging and we just... Uh, pointed out that, uh, you know, if there are machinations going on behind the scenes, Isaac will certainly not have uh, much time or capacity to uh, be doing a lot of online policy webinars. So, or or might, not want to, might not want to answer some tricky questions. He's quite a calculating campaign manager type. He doesn't want all the drama. And he wouldn't fancy being cornered by somebody in the Q&A asking him difficult questions at what is a very tender time. You know, he's, he's, I'm sure he'll get called back into Downing Street come campaign time. And that might be quite soon, given there's local uh, elections next year. But whether he's, you know, the type to uh, be the office manager, essentially, which is part of the chief of strategy's job, that's not his skill set. And he has a new firm that he's, you know, building up. So maybe there was an innocent explanation for that one. Well, perhaps. What there certainly wasn't an innocent explanation for was the BBC Women's Hour power list, um, at which was, quite frankly, outrageous this week. <laughs> um, Paul, could you talk us through what happened here? Well, the power list has been going for, I don't know, a decade or so, maybe longer. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when people like Margaret Thatcher would feature on the power list and world leaders, Angela Merkel. Now, we had this time, we had Caroline Lucas, who was the only name I recognised without looking up on uh, Wikipedia. Now, whatever you can say about Caroline Lucas, and she has been leader of her party, uh, but she doesn't have any power. You know, she's one MP. And the other names on there, who I frankly can't remember, were just, you know, campaigners in Bristol and stuff like that. It wasn't a power list. It was a a list of green campaigners, frankly. And and as someone said to me, who was involved in the power list back in the day, they wouldn't have got in the door. It just shows the woke now that is um, the BBC. 
when you look at the great offices of state and you look at people like Priti Patel, you look at women yeah. who actually sit in the cabinet, who make decisions, who uh, hold the power in their hands and can you and, and, and sit in the executive that, that controls the direction of the country. Um, or, or you look at people like Allegra Stratton. I mean, the idea that none of these people featured on the list and it was all just sort of North well, London, pat each other on the back. To be fair, it was... Uh, they stated this year they were going to try and bias it towards environmental issues, didn't they? In mm. which case, why wasn't Carrie Simmons on the list? Right. Right. Maybe Especially after her. the last week, you'd think probably she carries a bit more power than everyone was assuming in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And, the same, and of course, the same week as the massive uh, green industrial revolution uh, was announced, this billion pound splurge by the government, I can't imagine that uh, it would have had such a policy priority if you didn't have a lifelong environmental campaigner, not, you know, in Downing Street, in the flat, pushing uh, certain personal policy objectives. And yet she was ignored in favour of uh, a 15-year-old, a Guardian correspondent, activist lawyers, and the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. <laughs> Also, Greta didn't even get a look in. I mean, what's going on? Is Greta... She's old news. She's too old. Is she an adult yet? Because, like, honestly, I mean, she's got the face of a 12-year-old, but she's a lot older than I think a lot of people realise. She's busy stealing the future of younger campaigners now. Amazing, amazing. You couldn't make it up. Well, I mean, thankfully, there is at last going to be some sort of counterbalance to this woke nonsense from the BBC. Um, because we ran a story this week about a big stride forward in terms of the media landscape uh, of this country and the broadcast media landscape, which has been heavily kilted to the left since it, was, since it began. Um, because, of course, we know that there are two offerings that are going to be sort of broadly right of centre TV channels popping up. On the one hand, there's the News UK Rupert Murdoch offer. And on the other hand, there's GB News, which is chaired by Andrew Neil. And these two are, are both expected to sort of come to fruition at some time in the first half of next year. Uh, well, we ran um, an exclusive story saying this week that the News UK offering is going to start building their studio in December, meaning that perhaps it is nearer as an offering than people had expected, despite the fact they haven't published a name yet and no one knows what it's going to be called. They will be starting to build a studio in just uh, a week or two's time. They're also recruiting a whole host of producers and news executives and, and people who can build not just news shows but cultural shows so there's a lot of work going on in the mini shard the news uk headquarters in terms of building up this new tv station um, so that along with gb news suddenly we're going to see a bit of a, a counterbalance to all of the bbc's nonsense which i'm sure will be thoroughly welcomed by a lot of people well well only depends start out as a um, online channel though don't we it's, they're not applying for uh, for uh, broadcast rights are they it's going to be over the internet streaming 
Well, we don't know 100%. Obviously, nothing is official and confirmed. We know that GB News, I think, has uh, applied for and, and maybe even received a, a channel and they're aiming to be on sort of freeview and everything. Um, but we, we just don't know with News UK. Uh, they, haven't, they haven't released any official information about it. So a lot of this is stabbing in the dark. But there is some stuff that has been... Um, uh, found out whether that's through the placement of uh, job advertisements or people in the building knowing that construction work's going on. This is what we have to work off, really. Well, with that, I think we should probably draw this episode to a close. So thank you for sticking with us through uh, all this week's uh, news stories and gossip and catch us again next week. Thanks for watching and listening. Bye.